Hello, my name's Justin McClure, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking about, I'm going for it, Hayao Miyazaki. Got it. Yes! And I will continue to pronounce it in multiple different ways as we go through this podcast. Here's something you need to know about repertory movie theaters in Toronto and presumably the rest of the world. If they need a little bit of business, if they're short on cash, just program a week of Miyazaki movies. Watch those dollars roll in. Just sold out shows across the board. That's the one thing that movie theaters can be sure. I bet you there's someone at Disney that their only job is to program (laughs) Miyazaki movies. And what's weird about Disney is that they don't let people like program their stuff. So they must have like special rules for his films because they know they're going to make money. Miyazaki, listen, all our listeners know who Miyazaki is. The most famous Japanese animator of all time. Probably the most famous single animation figure since Walt Disney. A hundred percent. I don't know anyone who says stuff like, I hate his movies. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really exist because just watching them and sitting there and taking them in, you have to admit that these are quality, intelligently made and thoughtful motion pictures. You may be right. This guy may be as close as there is to like a consensus Mm -hmm. universally beloved choice. Why is it, do you think, that people want to go see his movies in a movie theater? Because most movies don't pack them in repertory movie theaters, and yet his do. I think that we're the generation that just missed growing up with his films. Absolutely. And that anyone younger than us, even kids today, stuff like My Neighbor Totoro is classics and they are watched over and over and over again i mean i remember when miyazaki was kind of making inroads as a as a force in north america and he was very much sold as okay now we know you don't like japanese animation we know you think it's all like sailor moon stuff or tentacle porn or some <laughs> some some you know there's no in between pokemon it's, or that's right you know one of those one of those things but here's did you grow up with anime though Oh, I mean, Sailor Moon used to be on TV. Pokemon used to be on TV. Every day. And you liked it. Like, you had your Pokemon cards. I I actually didn't like Pokemon that much. I I watched Sailor Moon when it was on. Yeah. It played every morning. I was five years old. I mean, you know, it was on. But uh, I think Princess Mononoke was the first of Miyazaki's films that got a significant push in North America. Yeah, Um, I mean, My Neighbor Totoro was released by Troma Films, the company that made The Toxic Avenger. They're the one that originally distributed it in America. And... And his feature-length film, uh, Nazca Valley of the Wind, was completely re-edited. A uh, new story was put on, on it. If you look at the poster, it's hilarious. It looks like an 80s like heavy metal style mm. picture, which is not really what it is. Even though that Miyazaki is very inspired by stuff like heavy metal. I mean, we're forgetting that Miyazaki is one of those people like Pixar that helped popularize the notion that, yes, adults can watch cartoons too. Mm-hmm. And so when Nausicaa Valley of the Wind was first distributed in the, in the United States... They're like, it's for kids? Well, or they were like, okay, well, how do we sell a movie like this for adults? Well, okay, what is our only precedent of an animated film that adults watch? <laughs> Heavy metal. <laughs> Fritz the cat. <laughs> Fritz the cat. <laughs> um, so why Miyazaki? I think, first of all, the obvious thing is his films are very pleasurable to look at. Mm-hmm. Okay, Very intense colors. You know, they look like a Monet painting. They're rich in detail. Something like Howl's Moving Castle. Mm-hmm. You have this big castle and your eye can barely even take it in. No wonder people want to see a movie like this in a movie theater. You want that castle on a big screen so you can see all the little details of it. But while his movies are beautiful, they're also 
capable of ugliness. Mm -hmm. Beauty and ugliness are kind of the same in his movies. And there's that sense of awe. There's also a lot of wit. There's sadness, melancholy. The movies are never just one thing at any given time. And uh, these these worlds that he creates, you know, people always talk about how Miyazaki transports you into these fantastical, magical worlds. So, like, you go see his movies in a movie theater, and it's like going into a sensory deprivation tank or something like that. It's a much more intense, overwhelming experience in a movie theater. And it's also a brand. Like, oh, yeah. people know what they're going to get mm-hmm. when they go see a movie by him. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why, when it plays in repertory screenings, people just want to go see them all. Mm-hmm. Either they missed one or two, or they grew up with them, and now they can see them in a way that they mm-hmm. couldn't experience at home. Well, what people know about Miyazaki is that uh, they're going to enter kind of a magical world. Mm-hmm. Um, and what they know is they're going to be constantly delighted and surprised in that magical world. So like the brand, like it's simultaneously a very familiar brand and you kind of know the sort of thing you're going to get. But within those confines, you're constantly being surprised. And his films are also very simple. Mm-hmm. Like a child can watch it and get it. While at the same time, a bunch of academic papers can be written about his films because he approaches them in such a complex way. It's that like magical balance of oftentimes, to use an example, you like web comics are drawn very simply and are very popular. Those artists are usually ones who could draw masterpieces with tons of detail, but they just understand how to dilute their art to its simplest form. And that's hard. Well, he's a very simple storyteller. Mm-hmm. He trims all the excess fat a movie like my neighbor totoro is uh famous for having you know virtually no conflict uh no villain no heavy drama none of the things that you none of the cheap narrative gimmicks screenwriting 101 stuff you would expect from a children's movie but visually he's very complex and the worlds he creates are very dense and detailed you see a movie like spirited away and it's full of so many different species of animal and ghost and the the bathhouse in the movie is so rich in texture like you feel like this is a world that has existed before you you went into the movie and there's stuff happening outside the frame and all these background characters are engaged in their own little dramas and have their own little histories yeah you want to revisit again and again Mm -hmm. and i think something like my neighbor totoro is also popular because of that hangout feel. Mm -hmm. Kids watch movies over and over and over and over again when they're Mm -hmm. children. They see something they like and they want to experience Mm -hmm. it a hundred times a day. And something like Totoro, there's almost no like hard beginning and hard end. Mm -hmm. So it's just a universe you get dropped in. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why a film like that is so popular. Also, there's a super cute creature that I, I'm sure people could explain what it is, is big and fuzzy and has teeth. So it has like all the different elements together that just illuminates a child's imagination. Well, the plot, such as it is, of My Neighbor Totoro, uh, there's a father named Tatsuo who has two daughters. There's an older one, Satsuki, who's maybe seven or eight years old. And there's a younger one named Mei, who's maybe four years old, three years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, they move to a home in rural Japan outside of Tokyo to be closer to their mother, Tatsuo's wife, who is uh, recovering of an ailment in a local hospice. 
The father is an academic and he's very busy all day at his desk, uh, but he's a, it's not one of those stories of like the bad dad. Yeah. Like has to learn a lesson, a Gerard Butler type, if you will. Yeah. Uh, or, or a Tim Allen in the Santa Claus <laughs> type. Uh, no, uh, he's just a good dad who's very busy mm-hmm. and the mother's in the hospital. So these kids just have a lot of time to hang out in the yard and make their own fun. And act like kids. Yeah. Like that's the thing about most Hollywood kids films is that the kids are put on rails on like the three-act structure for what movies need to be. And they often don't get to be kind of annoying on purpose or loud. And the kids in My Neighbor Totoro get to be those things. Like for the first 30 minutes, they just kind of run around and play games and scream at each other. They do get annoying. In a way that kids are. (laughs) I like an artist who remembers what childhood was actually like. Mm -hmm. Because as adults, we forget about it. We forget about... Um, the kind of directionless feeling of childhood or all the empty time and the feeling of powerlessness, but also the kind of wonder that you're capable of only as a child. So, you know, when you're a child, your world is very small and your surroundings outside of your world have so much mystery in them. You know, if you have a forest near your house, like, I mean, I remember when I was a kid, it was like this little forest area by our school, Mm -hmm. a little area of just endless fun and imagination. You know, when I was a kid, we'd go to my stepmother's parents' house, which was a farm, and they would just let me do whatever I wanted during the day. They would go run errands or they'd be somewhere else. I remember just like full days, just running through fields, looking at feral cats that were like (laughs) under the, an old truck that I've been using forever. They had a, super dangerous like tree house mm-hmm. that at one point I was like oh I want to go sleep in it and my dad's like yeah sure do whatever you want and raccoons came up and like started attacking me at night and like even if there isn't danger there like mm-hmm. as a kid it's if, excitement if, if you're looking through a forest like you you create your own sort of stories about mm-hmm. this forest right like oh that looks that looks scary could it be haunted and you know? as an adult you usually look at those things and you're like man this is kind of boring it's just like, a forest yeah what it, w- is there a challenge or something that I have to do right. while these kids are making their own challenges. But you know, it's funny. There's a scene, just to digress from Totoro, there's a scene in Howl's Moving Castle where there's the young girl who gets turned into an old woman in Mm -hmm. that movie and she is suddenly so awestruck by just staring at the ocean. Mm -hmm. She finds the ocean so beautiful and so calming as an old woman. And then uh, the kid who she's with says, I don't know, it just looks like an ocean to me. (laughs) Yep. So it, well, there's t- both extremes, it, right? It's like you're constantly looking at the world differently or with different shades, depending on where you are in your journey of life, right? And it should be noted as well that one of the reasons I think that his films are so popular is because they do have young women protagonists. Almost all of his films do, except for maybe Castle of Cagliostro and Porco Rosso, mm-hmm. who do have male protagonists. You know, Nausicaa was sort of his breakthrough movie where he sort of came into his own style. Right, that was the one that he was able to do by himself. Uh, Castle of Cagliostro was a work-for-hire job that he took on because he had worked on the Lupin the Third TV show, and they gave him a really tight deadline. The film was completed in four months, which is insane when you watch what the final result is. Yeah, so in the 70s, Miyazaki worked just for a lot of Japanese uh, children's shows, cartoon shows. Lupin the Third was an existing franchise, uh, Lupin the Third, which I think still keeps going to this day in some yep. form. Yep, uh, uh, there's animes that are released, usually OVAs, which are like m- miniseries. It was a manga created by the amazingly named Monkey Punch, 
And it became, like most popular Japanese things, an anime series, which Miyazaki was involved with. And he's kind of a, a roguish uh, a thief, mm-hmm. and he's got a sidekick, and he's got an antagonist, you know, a detective who hunts him, and then there's a rival thief. And in this movie, he has to save this princess who's being captured and forced to wed this sinister count. And the count holds her in this giant, uh, the, the titular castle. Oh, and there's a there's a treasure somewhere involved. So essentially, the like uh, building blocks of any pulp story, mm-hmm. like adventure, men's adventure specifically, this kind of James Bondian figure who can get out of any trap and is always one step ahead most of the time. This one uh, confused me a bit when I saw it as a teenager because it was not you know the Miyazaki I was expecting to see. It's it's just kind of a fun adventure story, but I mean it has a couple of things that we would come to see from later Miyazaki films. It I mean the animation. <laughs> is rich and detailed and full of all the kind of life that you would expect from Miyazaki. And the all- backgrounds, you could just like free frame it and put it up on a wall somewhere uh, and yeah. you could walk by every day and find something new in them. And, you know, revisiting it this week, the way that he depicts the castle, mm-hmm. uh, the castle is, to use a cliched phrase, like a character in the film. <laughs> um, it's such a dynamic space full of so many uh, doohickeys and traps and hallways. And it's kind of like Howl's Moving Castle, you know? Even though Miyazaki is playing in a well-worn genre, I think that he understands the subject matter so well and he knows how to make the best version of the thing. Like the loop in the third character, he's a goofball. He always seems to mess up right before he gets it right. You feel sympathetic for him. I've watched other feature films that Lupin the Third has starred in, and most of the time he comes off as a bit of a jackass. Mm. And here, Miyazaki just understands how to make him work and make him feel sympathetic while still hitting all the beats that this popular character has to hit. I mean, I think he's very charming in this movie because he's a thief, but he doesn't really do it for the thievery. No, he does it because it's fun. He does it for, yeah, because <laughs> yeah. it's fun, and he just wants an adventure. <laughs> and at the same time, I'm sure the script was probably handed to him, it is about saving a woman in a castle, but the film tries as hard as it can to give her as much agency as it can within the confines of this very sexist story. <laughs> yeah. You know, moving ahead to Spirited Away, mm-hmm. which I think is the consensus choice for his best movie. Uh, it was the one that I think really solidified his place in the United States, at least. I didn't like it when it came out and I saw it. Really? Yeah. Why not? Because I think at that time, I wanted something different from my anime. I was an anime fan. Mm -hmm. So, like, stuff like Akira that's playing to my, oh, look how amazing this looks and look how fast moving it is. While Spirited Away is, like most Miyazaki films, a hangout picture. Mm-hmm. I would even say that it's one of the best video game adaptations of a video game that doesn't exist, because huh. it's this character that's going day in, day out, and she has to figure stuff out, and while there is, like, something looming over her, in this case, she's in this magical world and her parents have been turned into pigs, mm-hmm. and she has to find a way to save them, there's never that, like, pressing, like, oh my god, I have to do this. Like, she gets a job, she sleeps, she goes to work. Well, there's never any guarantee that she is gonna save the mm-hmm. parents, and each scene does not necessarily build on the last scene. In a lot of these quest stories, you go to this level and this level mm-hmm. and it leads to this level. Oh boy, I have to go on the outside of the building and walk across a long thing before it collapses on me. I mean, it is often remarked upon that Miyazaki enjoys the sort of quotidian detail of mm-hmm. his stories. I mean, he he reminds me a little bit of his countryman Ozu, mm-hmm. uh, who enjoys just, you know, calm scenes of people sitting there and pouring tea. And a film like this, it's not about the uh, main character 
figuring out a way to overcome something. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, it's about Mm self-sacrifice and willing to put yourself in the way of danger in a way that's not even heroic. Mm -hmm. It's more like, well, I have to do this because it's the right thing to do. For example, in this film, the main character, the young girl whose parents are essentially kidnapped, she does things like throw away the promise of gold because it doesn't mean anything to her. This material wealth doesn't matter because she has actually people in her life that she cares about that she has to help in some way. I was watching this movie thinking, why is this not numbing to me? Mm-hmm. Two hours long. It's two hours long and there's so much in it. There's so many unfamiliar characters and weird worlds and everything. First of all, he grounds it so deeply in the emotion. Like, he sets you up with, like, the ultimate child's nightmare scenario, which is their parents are rendered powerless and somehow you have to save them. And she has to take on responsibility that she's never taken on before. In this case, a job. Like, the parents who are, like, the power figures in Mm -hmm. your life and your, your guiding forces, they are rendered... Uh, completely useless and, mm-hmm. and vulnerable. And that that's very scary. And yeah, you're thrust into adulthood suddenly in an uncaring world and there's no guidance for you. So that's, watching it as an adult, it taps into those familiar emotions, mm-hmm. you know? But at the same time, the strangeness that the character is going through, that we've all gone through when we're growing up, mm-hmm. is heightened by the fact that it's all a bunch of weird-looking monsters. Yeah. Which is great. But also the world of this movie and other Miyazaki movies is similar to our world. Mm-hmm. Like, it is... Like, people have jobs, and there's rules that they have to follow. Yeah. And there's very tedious things that need to be done. <laughs> you gotta clean this giant bathtub of slime, <laughs> because a slime monster just went into it. Yeah. And everyone in the movie is like... Like, he uses animation to give you an exaggerated version of what they would look like. You mm-hmm. know, a classic caricature situation. So, the owner of the bathhouse, this old woman with this gigantic head looks like an exaggerated version of the sort of woman you would imagine running a bathhouse, Mm -hmm. you know, in the real world. And at the same time, he has no qualms about just dropping clear iconography that will stay with every viewer, whether it be No-Face, who's like the see-through character with kind of a stiff white face with black eyes, or just cute stuff for the kids. Halfway through this film, suddenly there's two new characters, because other characters get transformed, where there's a little fat rat and a little bird that start to follow the main character along. And that could be very annoying. Mm -hmm. Like, you could imagine, like, all they want to do is sell some toys or throw it in a happy meal. But you never get that sense from Miyazaki. Well, all the creatures in his movies are so firmly themselves. Mm -hmm. Uh, They are allowed to be frustrating and annoying and eccentric. None of them are kind of cloyingly cute. None of them are like Tigger. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you're a big anti-Tigger fan? I I actually like Tigger, but but you you know what I'm saying. Like, uh, you know, Totoro doesn't talk and say cute things. Mm -hmm. He He almost acts like an animal in a certain sense that you're not quite sure what he's gonna do or why he's gonna or do what it. he's thinking yeah and yeah. i think that when you're a kid and you watch something like that or even when you're an adult there is a connection that's made mm-hmm. there because like these films are weird mm-hmm. so it's amazing that north american audiences because they're hitting all the right buttons can connect with them mm-hmm. in a way that they couldn't with any other foreign culture and also watching his movies again this week i was reminded because he's been on my mind of a pitch at pong where a i think i mispronounced his last name there <laughs> It was many weeks ago, and it's already <laughs> leaked out of our ears. A pitch pong, where, you know, there's a porous border between fantasy and reality. Mm-hmm. Like, 
the stuff that happens in My Neighbor Totoro, is it the little girl's fantasy? Does it matter? It doesn't matter. It's just, it's as real to her, you know? But I think that because it's also the two little girls mm-hmm. are experiencing it together, that does make a big mm-hmm. difference to viewing audiences. Yeah. Because it doesn't matter if the parents see it or not, as long as there's a bond of characters experiencing mm-hmm. it together. But yeah, the border between fantasy and reality is very thin. And just as it is with a child, right? Mm-hmm. Like, children, when they're in a forest and they're, like, playing make-believe, can almost, like, trick themselves of what they're actually... <laughs> what they're make-believing is actually real. Mm-hmm. And also with a pitch pong, there's no strict dichotomy between humans and animals and ghosts and spirits and... Uh, it doesn't matter. They're objects, all people. Yeah. Objects. Like, Howl's Moving Castle or... Also in Howl's Movie Castle, like that scarecrow broomstick mm-hmm. thing that follows her around. Or even in Totoro, the cat bus, right? Yeah. Which is like something that you would see every day as a kid, mm-hmm. given uh, a personality mm-hmm. and a look of something that... I like cats. Yeah. I like buses. Both of them together, it just makes something special that every kid wants a toy of it to play around with. And like nature in his movies is this living, breathing thing. Mm-hmm. It is also a character unto itself. And I mean, not to keep comparing him to filmmakers, but I was also reminded of The Thin Red Line by Terrence Malick. <laughs> yep. Because there's a, a, a shot in The Thin Red Line that has lingered with me of just like this wounded little bird mm-hmm. who's covered with like soot and oil and stuff. Because the war in the Thin Red Line is just one part of the landscape. Mm-hmm. There's all this other stuff that's happening. And I feel that way with Miyazaki as well. Like the, his forests and uh, bathhouses and whatever, they, they're living things. And that they exist beyond the frame. Yeah. And because of the stories that he's telling, again, I keep going back to Totoro because that's one of his most popular films. It's also the one with the loosest structure. Mm-hmm. Kids can live beyond that. Yeah. I was surprised to learn that there's actually a sequel to Totoro that can only be viewed if you go to the Ghibli Museum. And this is another important part, I think, of Miyazaki, is that not only are the films great and people love them, but the company also cultivates a cult-like atmosphere around the features that they make. Mm -hmm. They play, like, one short film for a couple of months, and you can only see it there, never released on DVD. You have to go to the museum to see it, and you have to go on this date to actually check it out. And I think that when people become fans of things, that's something kind of mystical and magical. The Mm. idea that it's out there, and that it's almost impossible to capture all of it. Mm -hmm. Well, also, I know that as Miyazaki is getting older, he's 78, and he is, I think, officially retired now, although they're... Nope, he has another feature coming out. I I know they're keeping rumors of another feature. Is it confirmed? Yeah, it's confirmed. There's another film that he's making that's coming out. After saying that he was going to retire, he then made a short Mm -hmm. and then he moved on and said, ah, you know what? I'm just going to make another feature. I know Ghibli has been in financial problems over the years Mm -hmm. um, due to the way that they make their films because i mean they are still committed to hand-drawn animation miyazaki himself often draws a lot of his own frames and miyazaki himself is also very particular about how these things are done there's a documentary that came out a few years ago did you get a chance to see it no no i didn't and you know he's exactly who you think he would be kind of crusty kind of grumpy at this point he lives very sparsely Mm -hmm. all that he really has is his animation and he doesn't work with a script normally does he like i think that he kind of storyboards stuff out so they Mm -hmm. have things prepared Mm -hmm. and that he is so closely involved with these pictures that 
it's difficult to complete them on time and to make enough money to keep the studio going. But he's getting on in years, and I guess Ghibli has made efforts to sort of build itself up as a brand beyond him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean, there have been many great films that have come out of Studio Ghibli, like Grave of the Fireflies or Secret World of Arietti or all those things. So it is a, a very strong brand. And at the same time, though, Miyazaki has always like fought against stuff that he doesn't approve of. Do you remember a few years ago, his son started directing animation he did Tales of the Earth Sea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, Miyazaki was quoted being like, ah, I told my son not to direct anything. I don't know if he was up to it. Oh, dear. <laughs> yeah. I think that that kind of perfectionism, which also looks like, you know, crankiness and maybe mm-hmm. very difficult, is the reason that, you know, people love his movies as much as they do. Mm-hmm. He is at once someone that I don't think the fans would probably want to meet because they would probably be disappointed. And he represents something that everybody loves so much. So on the Patreon this week, uh, we're coming to you live from the Important Cinema Club Journal book launch at the beautiful Imperial Pub in downtown Toronto. Justin and I, right before the Oscars, did a a little history of that man called Oscar. His greatest moments, his greatest flubs. (laughs) And we did it in front of a live studio audience. Uh, Thanks, by the way, to everyone who came out to the Important Cinema Club Journal book launch. We really appreciate uh, it. Justin and I had a, had a fun time. And if you haven't gotten the uh, book yet, you can now, if you're in Toronto, purchase it at the Tiff Bell Lightbox Bookstore. <laughs> and it's also at Type Books on Queen Street. So, And if you're not in Toronto, uh, you can get it online at any of the Amazons. It's mm-hmm. on there. It's great. We highly recommend it. We're going to keep advertising it till I guess we sell out and we'll never sell out. So That's right. Forever we will advertise it. Justin, do we have any letters? Yes, we do. We have one here from Tony Marshall. And it goes, hey, guys, the cinema I work at is doing a tribute to everyone's favorite rogue one star, Yang Wang. I'm getting ready to see his work with Zhang Yimou and remember you guys mentioning him. I'd love to hear an episode where you go deep into a filmmaker who is undeniably talented, but functions as a propaganda tool for his country above all else. Also, adore your Hong Kong episodes. It has made me watch movies I would have never tried before. Oh, well, thank you very much, Tony. I mean, uh, a filmmaker who works as a propaganda tool, Lenny Riefenstahl. I mean, there are certainly... Uh, Jackie Chan. Jackie Chan. (laughs) Yep. I've discussed this with Willis little bit but that's almost like michael and us territory where yeah, you talk about maybe. that although i don't know we can we can find opportunities i think i mean we're, we're just and i are very interested in china these days mm-hmm. because like all the all the stuff in china is is because we loved it so much and it's bad now and it's so controlled that like it's insane the fact that there's so many bodies that make one film me and will like to play a game that when a movie starts we count how many title cards there are and it's always like tim and eric's billion dollar movie there's like 12 <laughs> of them and then the names of everyone that was involved what a joke that is yeah it's horrifying uh, I think you know most propaganda films are not good no and it's because it's propaganda it's mm-hmm. not art but know? I think that someone like uh, Zhang Yimou it's impossible to talk about him without getting into like the last 20 years of his work but even then you can look at his career and there, there's like a one for them one for me. Yeah. Like, he gets to remake um, uh, Blood Simple, the Coen Brothers movie, yeah. which is weird. Or recently, he has a movie about the Cultural Revolution that was supposed to play at the Berlin Film Festival, and uh, it's not because it wasn't done on time. Wink, wink. Yeah, yeah. It seems to have been banned, although he also did the opening ceremony at the Beijing Olympics. <laughs> Zhang Yimou is a weird one because he's somebody who sort of came to prominence making these films that were banned in China mm-hmm. and uh, that were very controversial. Uh, and then he sort of got into China's 
good graces and like the you know the Beijing Olympics was a fucking propaganda ceremony. Well, just look at uh, Chen K, the guy who made Farewell My Concubine, a film incredibly critical of the Cultural Revolution and everything around it that stars gay characters, mm-hmm. and now. Essentially, they just gave him whatever he wants, and he makes just, like, big budget, like, they built a whole city for him for this mystery film that he made that's not even that good. So, like, he took the thing where it's like, oh, you know what? I'll just make whatever I want, like a giant wuxia film, like The Promise, and I won't try to be too critical about anything. It's hard to make movies in China. Especially if you want to make big budget ones. Mm -hmm. It's also hard to make small budget ones because you'll be thrown into a gulag. (laughs) Yeah, in China. Yeah. I thought that we were um, segueing this into a conversation about Impossible Horror, available now on uh, Vimeo. So if you haven't bought the Blu-ray, you can now, for five bucks, you can rent it and watch it at home. You should watch it, folks. Oh, and by the way, uh, regarding propaganda, so I would mm. also say, uh, I'm sure we'll do an Eisenstein episode soon. Yes, I keep yeah. trying to like push it towards Will, and he's like, oh, I don't know, I'm pretty busy this week. <laughs> it's, what is there to say? He's hard work. I mean, we just did Miyazaki, which we were like, I don't know what we're going to say about him. And we got it. We hit all those bullet points, and... I'm sure uh, people are sitting there going, how could they not talk about this? They promised me Porco Rosso. There's only so many days in the week, folks. Hey, I'll tell you what we're going to do next week. Mm. Just passed away is Stanley Donan. Oh, no. He was 94 years old. Wait, hadn't he passed away a few decades ago? (laughs) I'm kidding. I knew he was still alive. Uh, He hasn't made a film since Bring It On Rio. Mm -hmm. Or what was it? Was that Blame It On Rio? Yes, the one where Michael Caine has sex with his uh, friend's daughter. (laughs) But he also made a movie you might have heard of called Singing in the Rain. Hmm. Mm. Does it ring a bell? Yes. Isn't there like uh, a video of that, a commercial where he like break dances and stuff like that? <laughs> and Gene Kelly's uh, superimposed faces on him. And they've uh, put a vacuum cleaner into <laughs> yes, his hand or something. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, we're going to pay tribute to the master, Mr. Elaine May himself, Stanley Donan. Oh, he was married to Elaine May? That's right. I think the thing about Stanley Donan is I. Out of all the musical directors from that classical period, he's the one the most in control with his material. Mm-hmm. Like, we did an episode on Vincent Minnelli, and his films are kind of, like, flabby and all over the place. <laughs> and Donan, he actually was a huge cinephile. Like, he loved all that stuff, and he liked to give talks and go see new movies. And you can feel in his films that he's always trying to get the best version of this thing. Mm-hmm. And as opposed to someone like um, the Fred Astaire movies, which are very breezy and light, Stanley Donan films, Donan, we don't know. We we'll took a roll of the dice. <laughs> I think that there's a kind of construction to them that appeals to mm-hmm. me as a film watcher. So we're going to talk about Singing in the Rain. Sure, we're gonna talk about charade. Uh, Are you gonna make me watch Blame It on Rio? Ah, uh, no, I'm not gonna do that. But I am very interested in watching Bedazzled, mm. not the Brendan Fraser one, mm. but the first one with Dudley Moore. Ah, oh, well, you're not talking about the movie that I saw on one of my birthdays. Big mistake. <laughs> <laughs> so that's coming up next week. Mm-hmm. So until then, my name's Justin McClue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. So the Oscars happened, Will. What uh, new information will we be able to share with the uh, listener that they haven't already heard a hundred times by now? Oh, man. Nothing. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I mean, I had a pretty good time watching the show. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think I was happy to see no host, actually. Oh, never bring back a host. What's the point of them? They just do a long introduction at the beginning and then come in from the sidelines every now and then, do some lame comedy nobody likes because a whole committee has to agree on every joke (laughs) they do. Yeah. So it's all terrible. It's like making movies in China. Yeah. 
So instead, it just actually it moved really fast. I read some people or li- heard some people say that they felt like there was no peaks or anything like that. And I'm like, what are you talking about? As long as somebody gives a good speech, that's what the highlight is. I thought there were plenty of good speeches. Mm-hmm. Uh, even the below the line categories, your yeah, you know, the various uh, costume designer stuff like that. An African American person had never been nominated in those awards before. Wow. Yeah. Uh, the fact that. Green Book won Best Screenplay. You know, the guy who wrote that screenplay, Nick Vallelenga, or whatever mm. the hell his name is, I mean, he's sort of like the Frank D'Angelo of L.A. <laughs> he's sort he? of a notorious figure. Uh, he had a bunch of pro-Trump tweets that uh, resurfaced yes, uh, recently, right? Islamophobic stuff. <laughs> and uh, he beat Paul Schrader. Uh, hopefully, Paul Schrader will one day learn to be as good a writer as Nick <laughs> Vallelenga. But the highlight of that is that Samuel Jackson could read and discuss that Green Book won, and then he could read that Spike Lee won, yeah. and Spike Lee actually won an Oscar. Not for his greatest film, but winning for him, I think, meant more than whatever movie it was. Uh-huh. It was a kind of validation that he's always joked about that he doesn't want, but just like a bad man Woody Allen, he wants it. Like, well, it means something to he him. Got, he got crushed anyway, though, because Green Book beat him for Best Picture. Uh, Black Klansman was never going to win Best Picture. Yeah. And it's but funny, of all the movies to lose to. Ugh. And it's funny that you, you got grumpy Spike Lee in his seat right up until Black Klansman won, and then he was the happiest Spike Lee that I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> Jumping into Samuel Jackson's arms every post um oscar interview is like spike lee just having a ball and throwing out zingers but i thought it was a a, a more fun show than normal mm-hmm. i thought it was the winners were atrocious for the most part oh i thought there was a lot of like um mostly like you said below the line stuff like bohemian rhapsody for i haven't seen bohemian rhapsody no i'm not gonna see bohemian but, rhapsody but, but what i know is that i've seen it was that, directed by a pedophile i've seen that clip that everyone posts of the of the oh. editing which and it won for editing it's like a chin su tongue hong kong action film with so many cuts and all over the place it won the two sound categories just because it had queen music in it it won best actor and the clip that they showed was rami malik lip-syncing <laughs> to queen music and look i mean i haven't seen at eternity's gate but i see that clip and then i see defoe and I think, you know, maybe Defoe, one day you'll learn to act and you'll be able to win this thing. <laughs> yeah, you know what, Defoe, why aren't you singing any Queen song? Yeah. There was one really funny <laughs> cut where uh, the people who won for uh, Into the Spider-Verse, which, how could it not win? It yeah. was up against a bunch of sequels and it's an amazing movie. It's the, it's the jokiest category ever. Yeah. It's a ridiculous. There's one good animated movie every year. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> while they were talking, it cut to William Defoe. Because I'm sure the producers were like, I don't know, he played the Green Goblin, <laughs> right? <laughs> So yeah. we should have a camera on him when they're yeah. talking. Uh, I don't care. <laughs> yeah. He's like very invested in if Into the Spider-Verse uh, would win or not. And I mean, if there's anything good about this night is that Brian Singer didn't win the Academy Award. Yeah. But I know that he makes royalties off that movie. I read a headline that said he's poised to make something like 40 million off that movie. We so. live in hell. 